as of late, you just produced uh, some sort of a fashion emerging designer showcase. Um, in the past, you've worked with celebrities and styled them for covers, as well as done a ton of things in the design showroom space for Ralph Lauren and Escada as a global director of design. So is there anything that you can't do, Javier? <laughs> if there is, I don't know what that is yet. Um, but yeah, thank you. I'm happy to be sitting here with Yvonne. Um, and yeah, we started uh, Next Frontier in Fashion, which is a show that we put together, myself and my co-producing partner, D'Angelo Thompson, who is a uh, Emmy Award winning makeup artist. Um, and yeah, we just wanted to create a space where we can um, showcase designers of color. We wanted to um, really give the opportunity to, you know, marginalized communities. So we had very good representation. Uh, we had a beautiful designer who is Latina, Muslim, uh, who comes from Dominican Republic in Colombia. Um, so that was really exciting. We had a, a Kent State University. Uh, they were our, our education partners, and we got to uh, give a grant to one of their design uh, designing um, students, and she happens to be a Black trans woman. So we had a really amazing, different uh, show for New York Fashion Week. Um, and yeah, so it was amazing. It was great. That's awesome. So for us, we have been working with you for about, I would say, what, five or six, maybe even seven or eight years, huh? Wow. Yeah, it's been a minute. It's been, it's a, been minute. a minute. Wow, time flies. So, um, you know, working with you at that capacity in all different facets, from production to logistics to fashion shoots to cover shoots to cover bookings um, to all these different things, I just was curious, but how did you even get into this space of the world of design? Can you walk us through like a moment in time that you can remember at the earliest age that you said to yourself you wanted to be in fashion or wardrobe stylist? Do you recall any of those moments? Yeah, I mean, I remember growing up thinking uh, a lot about fashion, thinking about the world and its beauty. And I think that fashion is a great way to express yourself without having to verbally speak. Um, and so from a very early young age, I love shoes. I love, you know, different suits. I love it was something that was within. But when I was 18, a friend of mine said to me, you should uh, do visual merchandising. And. I had no idea what that was at that time. And uh, I looked into it. He was a store manager for J. Crew, And so he was opening a store. And so I started, you know, from being a cashier um, to a sales supervisor to a manager, a visual manager. Um, I really grew up in the industry. So I guess I would be considered a retail baby. Um, so I really know all the facets of how to, you know, run a successful business because I grew up in the, in the business. So once I started doing that, you know, celebrity styling came to me very natural, um, and, you know, dealing with 
the PR departments and marketing departments of the companies I work with. Um, it really, you know, supported the idea of me dressing celebrities um, as well as doing visual merchandising for them. And what another follow-up question to to a very great answer. Um, when did you really know that you wanted to do something in the design art space? Were you like four years old? Did you paint young at a young age? Did you sculpt? Were you playing in mom, dad's closet? Um, <laughs> like, when did you really know? No, because I, I felt like for me, I played in my mom and dad's clothes. My dad had these amazing button down shirts, these Hawaiian type flower floral print prints, and they were flowy. And he was like, the, he always had, a, you know, um, a red, what was it, a marble red cigarette in his mouth. Right. And he's like, hey, Vaughn, how you doing, Vaughn? <laughs> um, and so, right. like, he was just so hilarious because he was the, he was like the, 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 the comic and the comedian of the entire, he was, he's so, he was so comical. You yeah. know, he's like, a, he's like a larger than life presence and he was always colorful. Um, him and both my mom have now since passed. But I just remember, like, the, the, their style, their sense of style. Did you have anybody in your family that had a great oh sense of style? Oh my God, my mom and my dad, I have like a picture of them when they were very young and my dad was rocking this all white suit and right, it was like the 70s. So he was rocking an all white suit with an Afro. And then my mom had like this colorful blue dress with all these like <laughs> different colors. Like it was, they're always, they were always on point. So, you know, I always kind of knew that even when they went on their date night, you kind of, we uh, as kids would kind of, you know, come together and see what they would look like um, when, before going out. You know, we stay with our aunts and stuff like that. So I think it was very, it was influenced uh, very early on. But like I said, I think that I, uh, fashion has a very strong, strong force connected to it. And um, I, as soon as I saw what I was able to convey with fashion and what I was able to provide clients, it was, you know, it's more than just what they're wearing, right? Is their whole attitude change. You know, a lot of clients feel seen for the first time after I dress them or style them. Um, I think there's a beautiful interaction with humans when you work at making them, you know, super beautiful or, you know, when you, you're able to even just sometimes just talk to them, right? You're almost like a bartender, right? Or a therapist when it comes to being a celebrity stylist. So I always knew, like, and again, one of the missions is to make the world a more beautiful place. And I think that's kind of what I do with visual merchandising. People walk around the streets and see my work, see the visual displays and get to, you know, crack a smile in their face, on their face and, you know, take a picture and all that kind of stuff. Same thing with celebrity styling. Um, so I just think it's, you know, part of the art form for me. My first passion is dance. I've been dancing since I was a little baby. I was a little boy in the family party. You know what I'm saying? Dancing and having a good little time. And then I started professionally training. Um, but yeah, when it comes to, it's all about creating. You just have to continue creating. You must create. And with the 
Okay, you said a lot of things. So mm-hmm. where did you actually grow up? So I grew up in Aibonito. Aibonito is in uh, Borinquen, which is now known as Puerto Rico. Uh, but Aibonito is in the center of the island. It is um, the highest mountain where there's population in Puerto Rico. So uh, we have the best flowers. We have the... Uh, the annual festival, the festival of the flowers, where everybody comes from, you know, the island and out of the island to see, uh, you know, all of these beautiful flowers. Um, so, yeah, I grew up there, but, you know, my mom is Colombian, so I'm um, Puerto Rican and Colombian, and I grew up very, uh, very involved and very um, intertwined in both cultures. So my mother's very, very strong Colombian. We were the only kids I think in my hometown that spoke Spanish in the way that we spoke Spanish, just because it's a different, you know, uh, dialect. Is it there's different words and different meanings to certain words uh, in South America um, than in the Caribbean. So it's very interesting uh, mix of you know us growing up. But I wouldn't have it any other way. I love being Puerto Rican and Colombian, and just means more, uh, you know, arroz con habichuelas. Uh, it's just in a different seasoning, you know? So yeah, that's how I grew up. Wow. It sounds so beautiful growing up in a mountainous area or an island with a, all the beautiful, lavish landscapes and flower, floral arrangements. What was that? Yeah, like? the, right behind us was a canyon, uh, which you can, you can Google the San Cristobal, uh, Canyon San Cristobal in Aibonito, uh, which is was literally what we did on the weekends is go down the canyon and swim in fresh water and, you know, do our barbecue and family gathering down there with friends. Um, so, yeah, I was very fortunate, very blessed to, you know, have a very humble uh, beginning and, and very wholesome, if you will. And what kind of colors did you see? Which shapes did you see when you were growing up? Because I know for me, I saw a lot of like colors, like um, a lot of like 70s babies. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The colors are so like, like they're muted, but at the same time, they're like, they're they're, they're overexposed somewhat. So for me, I saw a lot of like electric light colors or soft hues yeah. like sea foams and and um and pea greens and and um intermixed with like dark chocolates and and um, mustards and what else and uh, oh and um dark browns yeah so, you grew up in, in detroit right in the in the u.s so you were growing up with all of that i didn't, I, I didn't grow up with an island <laughs> i didn't I didn't grow up uh, jumping off canyons. Instead, I was running across highways trying to escape trouble uh, <laughs> <laughs> and dodging traffic from my family because I was always bad. But uh-huh. what colors and shapes did you see? Because I saw a oh, lot of shapes Yeah, of well, you know, since again, since we're a mountain, I, everything is green. So I tell, I tell folks, you know, if you watch the movie Avatar, and that's how I grew up like an avatar everything is green we love our trees we respect our mountains you know we love our nature 
our birds are beautiful, our florals from orchids, you know, to the amapola, to, you know, the, the, the flamboyant trees are a spectacle. Like at night, the, tree, the, the, the stars just literally put on a show for you every single night. So literally is, it was the most green, beautiful, fresh air. <laughs> the environment to grow up into. <laughs> yeah, my environment was slightly different. Growing up in a motor city, I uh I noticed that I um you know I embraced the I guess the 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 dark skies. <laughs> Because, you know, going to Motown or Motor City, it's like tons of, I guess, pollution to a certain degree. Because, right, you know, right. you know they're, they're making cars and, and all the pollution goes in the air. So the light pollution from the city, as well as the noise pollution, then there's the, you know, the, the overall environment pollution. I didn't see many stars. Um, the only stars I saw was getting hit, getting hit in the head with a brick or something, uh, <laughs> fighting okay. or getting jumped. But um, you know, if I saw a bird, it was very rare. So, saw tons of squirrels, and then pigeons. the squirrels, yeah, pig, well, not pigeons as much as I see those in New York, but in Detroit, um, I don't know. It was clean some parts, um, and then some parts weren't. But for the most part, it was a, it was a great childhood. But I remember with the squirrels and tons of stray cats, cute little tabby cats. We had a cat named Lucky. Did you have any pets as well? We did. We did. We grew up in a farm. So everything, you know, there were all our pets. I mean, uh, but we did have a dog. Her name was Negri, which oh, she was all black, beautiful. Um, such a good dog. But yeah, we, we love animals. That's just the part of, you know, our everyday. And what type of animal was, what kind of dog was, was uh, your dog? Negri was just, you know, a chick from the streets. She was just like, yeah, they, she was just like a little baby that needed adoption. And uh, we took her in and, you know, and she was just the best. What well, She was the best mother. I remember when she had her litter, um, the way she really took care of them. So, yeah, she was. <laughs> she was just a chick from the from the streets, <laughs> right? Yeah. Right now, you know, I feel like this whole fashion week. I saw tons of beautiful art and people dressed up and wearing cool clothes and just sort of free mind. And then I also encountered some very interesting other, you know, other types of characters um, that were that were reminiscent of my upbringing in Detroit as well. Um, did you have any characters in your your um, where you grew up that like you know was there like a a neighborhood person or somebody you could lean on or a neighborhood griot or a, a cousin or another family member that kind of guided you through that adolescence? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that we have. It, I grew up in a very community kind of you know feel and environment where you know even if you're na neighbor reprimanded you or you know saw you doing something you weren't they kind of had the authority to be like hey what are you doing versus like i think one of the biggest culture shocks for me here in the u.s was just 
uh, you know, hey, don't talk to my kid. And, you know, that kind of like there's at least, you know, for me in the experience of like New York versus, you know, something where I grew up. Um, but yeah, you have like, you know, the, the teacher, I had a theater th teacher, um, Aidita, who, who was great because she, uh, you know, she was the one who started the dance program in, uh, in my hometown. So, you know, thanks to women like her, you know, uh, folks like me can, you know, have a earlier training and now they're even, they're training even younger, than uh than when I started training. So yeah, there were there were certain definitely some some key players that I'm like to go back to and say thanks to. And what types of training were you going through with her dance studio? Was it ballet or hip hop or musical or jazz or contemporary? Yeah, when I started with her it was hip hop because you know the boys had to dance hip hop. It was just, you know, again Puerto Rico you know, kind of grew up in that very, you know, machismo, you know. Uh, but then uh, I also came to New York uh, in junior high school and started dancing jazz and ballet here in New York. And that, you know, then took everything else to a, a different level. Um, I went back to Puerto Rico for high school and I was a different dancer um more trained dancing all around um i did a ballet performance one of the top theaters in puerto rico while i was in high school um so yeah but again she you know they teach you performance and they teach you how to be in a group and they teach you how to you know do all those things so so yeah she was great but she is great she's still doing it <laughs> so the arts they really guided you or and help you find find your uh your, your the world of creativity um did you feel like do you how do you feel about the um that those programs in schools today do you feel like those should be saved or do you feel it was a necessity for your your human you know overall human growth and development there should be saved and there should be added programs i think that we need to put a lot of emphasis on our arts and, you know, there's a lot of power in the arts. And I think that, you know, the removing any of those uh, programs uh, would just be moving the world backwards, which unfortunately is kind of where we're heading. Yeah, with all the budget cuts. You know, the constraints and districting in certain cities and how they're breaking it up with taxes and low-income areas don't have, they don't pay a lot of taxes because they don't have any jobs and so forth and so on. And we right. know how that goes. So, you know, being a, a, a pupil of creative nature, I noticed the same thing, but I was fortunate enough to play instruments and play color in there and trump, uh, no, trumpet. That's what I play. Oh, I even sang a little bit. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, but but then and then one time I was I guess I was getting good enough in Glee Club or whatever choir in kindergarten and the teacher Miss Hewitt I believe she was like go lightly she was like you could um you should she she made me be the lead so um not only was I this awkward but what I found is that people thought I was really adorable and cute and little and um and I was stylish for some kind of reason I don't I didn't really have a lot of clothes which is so funny. 
So when people say, you are so stylish, I was like, I never had any clothes. Um, <laughs> like I, and you're talking about a kid that used to go to Kmart with his mom and pick out a Sassoon belt and a Sassoon shirt and on the blue light special cell. And then um, basically, you know, improvise with those. And if I had the same jeans, I would just, you know, regurgitate those jeans or at least three or three, at least three times a week. And then once my, I even I get I get a little cool with it too, and I I think I, I put the pants inside out because they were dirty, and then the kids at school thought that, that you know they thought, they thought I was cool for doing that. Uh-huh. But the, the the weird things or the most awkward thing for me in that stage too was um, I didn't have a lot of confidence. I didn't like I didn't have a lot of um, sense of self as I do now as a grown man. But um, I just found that sometimes some of the kids were kind of rude. So if I took swimming classes, the kids would say I was a white boy. Um, I was on the swim team, he was a white boy. I was teased. If I sung in a choir, I was gay. Or I was, um, you know, I just wasn't a regular, you know, machismo type kid like you stated before. Did you feel any any of that opposition when you were dancing, ballet, or or hip-hop? I, once I came back and I was trained, uh, I was teaching them. Do you know what I mean? Certain things. So that's all you have to do, you know. And what, you know, like I said before, going to New York and starting to train there, um, I just really danced hip hop because that was all that they would even offer. That they would even kind of be like, "Oh, this is what you're doing." Do you know what I mean? I think that once I came back, like I said, and then started teaching them how to, you know, do fortes, then they were like, oh, wait a minute. Do you know what I mean? And then all of a sudden, you know, I was in the center of the, you know, number, you know. So, so, you know, train hard, educate yourself hard. And, you know what I'm saying? That's how you show it. You show it with uh showing it <laughs> you know what i'm saying like you br- you bring it and then you there's no way there's no room for criticism there's no room for somebody trying to make fun of you because you know that it would just be some hating so do, did you feel like you ever got bullied in school i feel like i was bullied sometimes but then i feel like i'm looking back and i feel like i was a bully as well or only because i had a a fast wit for humor and you know growing what growing up with I guess you know three older siblings and then me and my my older half sibling um I just felt like I was like a little uh, way way ahead of my time so I was able to crack yeah. jokes and my jokes had like you know a whole setup and they were like great and snappy uh-huh. and I was a fast clown so everybody was laughing so that was my way of like I guess defending myself against right people. Yeah. Did you feel like you had to do that as well or do something similar? Well, I think that what was cool is that my older brother was born 10 months before myself and I'm a twin. So there's three of us that we went to, you know, kindergarten together from the jump, right? So, like, if you mess with Juan Pedroza... (laughs) You're gonna mess with three pictures. You know what I mean? So you you didn't want that. Plus, we wouldn't like again, like, you know, the hometown that you know, not to be like that in kids in my hometown weren't like, you know, kids, you know, crack and joke and you know, all that kind of stuff. 
Um, but luckily I had my two brothers growing up. And so we didn't really have to navigate that. Um, I did have to stand up for like my twin brother. I remember fighting for him because somebody broke his backpack. And I was like, what? <laughs> That's not going to happen. So, uh, yeah, but no, I think overall, again, it was it was quite a, a pretty nice uh, childhood. And like, you know, that was uh, elementary. And again, I went to junior high school in New York. And whew, that was, you know, culture shock because uh, uh, I didn't understand right off the bat uh, why there was tension between uh, the African-American kids and the quote-unquote white kids. Um, and Because, you know, we're like uh, being raised in Puerto Rico, we mostly learn about our history and, you know, what they want to teach us about our history, rather. And, um, you know, very light American history. So, um, you know, the history of this country then you know once i grew older and understood that i understand you know the conflict and you know white folks feel the way that they feel um but yeah it was a culture shock to see that it was a culture shock to see kids tell their parents to shut up um it was a culture shock to um you know see kids like disrespecting teachers normally you know again puerto rico teachers are very respected like I had like I had like my fa father's science teacher teach me do you know what I mean like so it's very special to be able to grow up in those kind of environments so that's why you know I don't judge folks and they again different environments it means different ways of uh you know upbringings and that makes your brain go a certain kind of way <laughs> do you know what I mean yeah, I know for me, um, growing up in Detroit was like, it was like, a, I guess the best way to describe it was a gangster's paradise. It's when you're oblivious to everything that's really going on, going on around you. Yeah. Um, the prostitution, the drugs, the, um, you know, just the, the arson that goes on or went on on Devil's Night, which is the night before Halloween. You know, and unfortunately, I was a part of that as well, because for me, I didn't have a lot of parts. I didn't have any toys. I didn't have any money to go mm. play. You know, I didn't have any money to get ice cream from the ice right. cream. So for me, and if we did have an animal, unfortunately, the animal either died, somebody poisoned them, or poisoned my pit bull. It was just crazy oh, nonsense. No. You know, um, my cat got out the house one time or snuck out and then hit by a car. The next day, I found a cat frozen on the side of the road. No. So, yeah. So for me, it was like, those are my wake-up calls. You know, not being able to go, you know, in Detroit, there's a big road called Eight Mile Road, like the movie uh -huh. with Eminem. And when you cross that road, there's certain parts of or different uh, sub sub I guess sub districts and or suburbs of Detroit, like Hamtramck, um, you know, which is a, a predominantly Polish neighborhood. Mm -hmm. um, I know when I went over there, they had penny candy stores like Dairy Queen. They make these hamburgers for like a couple of dollars and you get this. You know, you get all this candy and all this other fun stuff and slu and slushies and, and and frozen this and that. You know, things that we didn't have, you know, readily available unless unless you walked a mile. <laughs> so right. when I crossed that when I crossed that mile, you know, 
it's not like, you know, in New York, it's so interesting because people don't really realize or we just don't care to care to rather. Um, NYPD controls, you know, they're, they're over the entire city or the or the five boroughs. So the whole metropolis or the whole, the whole area has NYPD. In Detroit, it's like Detroit police. And then there's this police and there's Hamtramck police and Gross Point police. It's just like, Jesus, it reminds me so much of LA. So when I was across that eight mile road, the Hamtramck police used to tell me to get out. They should chase me out of there because they didn't want little black kids over there in that area for whatever reason. Um, maybe some other black kids, um, you know, did some foolish things in that in, in doing around the same time and or it was pure racism. So for me, it was like, you know, I had to experience that at an early age. And I was like, why can't I go to that Dairy Queen? I still don't know more about me, you know, buy me a hamburger with cheese, <laughs> you know, huh. um, you know, give me a hot dog or right. some ice cream, you know, with the little sprinkles and different flavors. You know, in Detroit, we didn't really have a lot of 7-Elevens when I was growing up. That's a new phenomenon. Um, and we all know when you travel abroad, 7-Elevens is, 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 is everywhere. It's in every country. Um, it's probably the biggest retailer and or one of the biggest retailers in the world. Um, so for me, you know, not having access to certain things like ice cream readily available to me, um, I had to run across the street and get chased out by cops. It was just crazy nonsense. Did you feel like when you, so speaking of, you know, yeah, it was like a culture shock, like you said. So um <clears throat> When you came to America, you, as you stated, you noticed that a lot of kids didn't respect their parents. I know um, I could attest to not respecting my parents sometimes because we were sassy. You know, um, the African American culture in Detroit when I grew up, we were very sassy and smart mouthed and quick witted, and it's almost like you know our parents had to work multiple jobs. They worked full time or part time here and part time there or overtime, overtime, overtime. So they didn't come, they, they weren't able to come to school as much. They weren't able to, um, you know, my mom helped my heart, she, you know. She, right, she, they were surviving. They were doing what they needed to do to survive. Right. I, you know, with my parents, luckily my, you know, my dad worked a normal job. Uh, we were, you know, middle income family, uh, but my mom got to stay home and, you know, raise us. You know, we went to school. After school, we were home. Um, then, you know, we play with the kids of the neighborhood. And so, yeah, it's very, it was very, it was very different um, than coming here and like, you know, living in an apartment. Like getting, we had, we grew up in a place where if you weren't part of our family or if you didn't know our family, you wouldn't make that left because, that was just all of our families that lived there. My aunt lived there. My grandmother lived there. My other cousin lived up there. My, other, You know what I mean? It was very that. So thankfully, we didn't have to, you know, that eighth mile, that's some, you know, that's some other thing. And there, you know, there's parts in Puerto Rico, right, that are, you know, more dangerous um, and are marginalized, um by the government so they have they do what they need to do you know in order to survive and so those parts you know i'm sure they have stories that i would never you know understand or i would never experience um but you know again luckily for my family and myself we were raised in in a place that's literally called ibonito <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, 
it's like a little dream, bro. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, I, I can envision it. And I know one time you told me about it and I researched it and I was like, oh my God, he did not grow up here. This is crazy. It was just like so beautiful. It looked like Bali. Like as an African-American man that was able to go abroad and have the ability to work and, and um, you know, for three to six months at a time and see parts of the world like Bali and Singapore, like beautiful, clean, gorgeous places, mm-hmm. um, South Africa, Cape Town. I, I, I related those images that I found on Google to those places around the world that I've been to. And I was, just, I was like, whoa, I can imagine yeah, and this is why yeah, Puerto Ricans, this is why we're fighting. We're fighting every day to hold on to our island and you know stop for you know, everyone just from selling from buying uh the island because right now what's happening is the island is becoming more privatized and is almost like you know watching what they did to Hawaii and you know. Hawaii is beautiful and it's stunning and uh, they lack their natives in some of their parts of their island. So that's literally what's happening in Puerto Rico right now um, because it's a very special place. Do you know what I mean? So, so we have to keep fighting. We have to keep fighting. We're not going to stop. We're going to continue doing what we're doing. I think it's important that uh folks you know fight for their homelands uh whatever that is um for us that left you know for instance uh myself puerto rico and you know uh i love colombia been to colombia love it there every time i go you know it does feel like it's home um but there's also some issues that are you know special and uh unique to colombia um that folks you know of our time now needs to get up and help and do what we need to do so uh i'm I'm excited because again i am very i'm very puerto rican and very colombian um and i get i get to now give back to both of them and others you know, like with examples, creating the next frontier in fashion with D'Angelo, we're giving back to many people from that very different parts of the world. We had a Lebanese designer, Tati Sakar, you know, um, high post, an urban wear designer, super dope, super fly, like from Brooklyn, you know, he's in LA doing his thing now, but came and I went to his pop-up shop yesterday in the Lower East Side, because they like run the Lower East Side, um, and was able to, t- you know, talk to Kelly, and he took me through the whole Papa and his whole inspiration and all that. He was, you know, uh, one of the designers at Next Frontier in Fashion. So, you know, being able to do that and help folks and be able to give opportunities is what we we should all be doing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I definitely get it. Um, the key is if everyone else does. <clears throat> and speaking of which, I know that there's been a lot of dysfunction, I guess, yeah, dysfunction. There's been a lot of dysfunction in fashion um, industry that I feel not only from classism, racism, ageism, um, especially with the modeling agencies and 
being a part of that world, I know that all too often. Um, being one of three to maybe six on an agency board of thousands mm. is absolutely absurd. Um, and it's, you know, the, the pay rates and the differential is just terrible. Um, yeah, I mean, in Colombia, the minimum salary for a family is $250 for the month. For the month. And, you know, when you put folks in that specific situation, you know, humans are going to do what they need to do to survive, you know, so that's a very different upbringing than, for instance, myself in Ibonito, right? Like, there are people who have a completely different upbringing who don't, you know, who sometimes feel hopeless um, and can, you know, move forward. But that's when we take a look at the structures and we take a look at the systems and we take a look at the governments, you know, Nicaragua, you know, needs help. Venezuela, you know, there's a lot of places that just uh, are very sad to see what other humans have done to our lands, you know, our people, you know. Ukraine right now, like, you know, there's always, it seems just, just seems that we don't, we can't be at peace uh, ever uh, globally. Can you elaborate on the types of things people have done to your land and people um, so we can really understand what's really going on in, in Puerto Rico? Because I've heard so many different versions of the truth and then I can't rely on news as a source anymore. So I, we all have to investigate and do research on our own. I feel, I feel like I've been doing this for my entire life. Like you said, they teach us certain histories when we're adolescents to now. They teach us about certain cultures until you actually visit the place on your own. So right. can you tell us about or elaborate on the break? First of all, elaborate on the cultural diversity and demographics of Puerto Rico and then um, and let us know what's going on in terms of the gentrification. So, yeah, in terms of our people, we are Tainos, our, our indigenous uh, group. Um, and they, you know, we have to talk about the indigenous groups um, all over, you know, what is now known as the Americas and Central, you know, Central America, Caribbean, and the whole genocide um, in order to be able to understand our histories. Um, and then also, you know, once uh, the conquistadors uh, came over, they uh, did what all conquistadors have done historically and um, raped and killed and, you know, brought disease and, you know, all of that. Same happened to Puerto Rico when you know, the treasures were stolen. <clears throat> and then uh, the African, you know, slave was brought in um you know to replace the taino and to do the hard labor so then uh that's how you have you know the afro population come in so there was a mix between the taino um in some cases there was a mix between the tainos the spanish and an african right but there are also places in puerto rico where they are just african descendants 
They came from Africa. They settled in places like, for instance, Loisa, and they have never mixed with any other, uh, you know, race, entity, however you want to define that. Um, so those are, are beautiful. <laughs> I love Loisa. Loisa is where our, you know, flavor comes from, where... Um, it's just a beautiful, 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 beautiful place. I tell everybody who asked me to go about Puerto Rico, I said, please go to Loisa. Um, the food is absolutely amazing. You know, the treatment is outstanding. It's just beautiful. Um, but yeah, that's um, the history. You know, we're the oldest colony in the world. You know, um, there's four million Puerto Ricans on the island and there's four million Puerto Ricans in New York, uh, the diaspora. And um, that's kind of, that says a lot about the history of Puerto Rico right there because a lot of us have had to leave the island um, in order to go after, you know, the big dreams that, you know, we want to fulfill. Um, and currently, you know, we're, we're fighting uh, government, like feel like left and right. Um, the Puerto Rican people on the island are no joke. Um, and they, you know, will throw a governor out and get him out of the, you know, governor's seat. Um, if they're not, you know, feel that they're not doing what they need to do with the, the case of Ricky Rosselló, he had to go. Um, and so a lot of Puerto Ricans are filing for independence. Um, the older generation, you know, still has a little bit of the romance with the conquistador. The younger generation does not and understands that that's not the way that they want to, you know, live their lives. So we're in a very interesting mix of, you know, uh, sh the shaping of Puerto Rico and the world, actually, um, if you really think about it. Um, but, you know, we're having problems with the electricity. We're having problems with, I mean, Luma took over and they're a Canadian um, United States uh, based company. And they're just, the Puerto Rican people are experiencing more, uh, you know, outages that they were since they took over. Um, so they've now protesting in the same manner that they protested for the government uh, for Rosillo to be uh, forced out. So, um, yeah, Puerto Rico, you know, it's beautiful, it's special, but unfortunately has had to deal with a lot of issues uh, from the United States. And I mean, we can go into the taxes, we can go into, you know, so many different Promesa Act, we can go into... There's just been a couple of things that, you know, have really hurt the island. So we need to see how, how we can fix all that and, you know, get rid of that debt that was uh, accumulated by these uh, treaties. What type of things um, went on with the corruption on the island um, that you didn't kind of talk about? And can you also speak to or at least educate us a little bit about the history between Puerto Rico and Dominican Republic? Because I feel like Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico, they're so similar, but they're extremely different. Um, and I think people tend to group them into one category. Um, yeah. Like myself, I've done it in the past, but I've 
I've totally, I don't do that anymore um, for, you know, I'm more educated. Um, and, you know, every day I get better by just doing research on my own and, you know, and being a part of the Bronx community um, and just being able to explore and noticing that the shift w- within the Bronx um, went from being Puerto Rican dominant to DR dominant. So I think it's like, I think it's like, it's a, I think it's pretty high. It's like 70% of people in the Bronx are Dominican or mm. you know, also under, um, and then another number that's kind of daunting is that 70% of people live in the Bronx um, are also uh, living below the threshold for poverty. So, uh, yeah, so that's, you know, but I know Puerto Ricans and the Bronx and, you know, has a, have a big, you know, they, they, they have a big, they have a big accomplishment within the hip hop industry, you know, Boogie Down Bronx. And, you know, now they have the Universal uh, Hip Hop Museum that's going to be that's being built. And we were at the groundbreaking ceremony with the uh, the mayor, Bellasio, as um, at the time, and also Nas and El Puja. And I think Little Kim was there. Um, and that was so awesome because being, a uh, you know, a, a Black-owned book um, that's LGBT-friendly and um, that's from L.A., it's just so cool that they invited us to that um, ceremony. It was, it was very, it was very, it was very, it was very, it was, very, uh, it was an honor to say, to say the least because, you know, um, you know, we didn't have any ties in this community. Right. But, um, but I've have, I have noticed, you know, the differences between the food and the way they dress and just the way they speak. And, but what's the history? Is there any confrontation? I feel like this, it feels like a little bit of confrontation with those two communities. Can you like, I guess elaborate on that and why, possibly. Yeah, I think uh, when it comes to when it comes to groups, right? They always try to kind of put you against each other. If you really think about it, like all of us, right? Even you know, like African Americans, they try to separate folks by how dark they are versus how light they are. Um, you know, they give names to all those kind of things. So I think that we have we also deal with the same in terms of colorism, um, with um, the fact that we have we have Latinos who are blonde, blue eyes. Hold on one second. Hold on yeah. one second. Can you can you just tell us some of those names? Because I think a lot of people think I'm Dominican or of, of um, Latin heritage. I'm sure there's something. In that uh, 21 and me, a 23 and me, whatever you call that, you know those gene tests. But uh, what, what's going on? And what, what what are some of those names? Um, I'm assuming they're derogatory. So can you just let us know what some of those names are, so I can be on, I can be on the lookout or listen out for those. <laughs> because I mean, I notice when I go to certain parts of town um, in the Bronx or certain areas of the Bronx, like Little Italy, um, I'm I'm respected. Well, I make sure that I, that I hold my own um, wherever I go, period, I'm from Detroit. Nothing really scares me. Um, and I've been in shanty towns all the way, you know, in South Africa, all the way to any hood place you can ever think of. So, and even in New York, you know. Yeah. Being, being in Marcy, being, you know, Marcy Projects, living near Fort Green Projects, I'm not really afraid of a lot. You know, I'm kind of numb to, to that world, to that world of pain and hunger because I've gone through it so much. So it's like, you know, I, so I can relate to people on that level and empathize, but I'm, I, I do, I do notice there is some, um, there is a little bit of um, pushback from both communities. And I noticed there is a tremendous difference in skin tone. 
So, um, and you mentioned the African roots with Dominica. Is there uh, Dominican Republic? Is there African roots in Puerto Rico as well? Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, again, there were uh, both places made of Tainos, and then you know, with the Dominican Republic, you also had. Um, they have a very strong history. <clears throat> Excuse me. They have a very strong history of um, race, racism, colorism, um, due to the their government. Um, so when it comes when it comes to that, is a lot of you know people just not knowing um, and trying to pin each other. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of Puerto Ricans, a lot of Dominicans that we're, we do consider each other brother and sisters. You know, everybody from the Caribbean, you know, Cubanos, you know, we all share a lot of the same foods, a lot of the same, you know. So I do tend to, you know, <clears throat> take a look at the uh, the things that do unite us because there's everything from music, you know, to sports, to um uh, I mean, right now, Bad Bunny's everywhere, you know what I'm saying? And and I think that we're all rooting for him, you know, not only Puerto Ricans, but Dominicans, Cubans, like I said, you know, the Caribbean, South Americans, you know, are looking at Bad Bunny. I mean, really, the whole world is looking at him in a, in a, in a certain way. Um, but unfortunately, here, you know, when it comes to the struggle and the pushback with, for instance, Puerto Ricans and Dominicans, you know, Puerto Ricans were here. Uh, you kind of go through the whole thing of, you know, when any immigrant group comes in, you know, and they're looking for work and they're trying to make their money, they're going to work for a less, you know, less, less amount of money in order to get the gig. And so then the person who has been here forever then is not able to get that money because somebody's doing it for a lesser job. And so they focus on things like that when they don't focus again on the system and why things are built in that kind of way. Um, so I think the stress between, you know, folks like that, you know, same thing with Mexicans, you know, um, folks feel towards them. <clears throat> but again, what, people are just trying to survive. And so I think we need to look again at the systems that we're under and not necessarily look at the, the people that are being affected by the system. Yeah, I totally agree with that. It just makes me go back to this other thing I was going to tell you, which I really didn't want to touch on, but I just think it's a conversation to be had. And I think that this is a proper, you know, environment to do it in, um, considering that, um, you know, we owe it to society and to our peers and to, people who are audience members and people who support us. And I feel like um, I was watching an actor uh, from Insecure, Kendrick uh, Sampson from HBO's Insecure. And um, I think that he was in, oh, I don't know where he was at. I think he was in Colombia or uh, Brazil or something. And the police at, I thought it was a joke because he's a fair-skinned African-American guy, um, very slim to lightweight uh -huh. in stature. Um, he appears to be somewhat 5'11", maybe lower to six. Um, handsome guy, light-colored eyes, you know, kind of a light-colored uh, complexion for African-American. So I was thinking, like, is he, like, playing games? Because, uh, you know, in our culture, I, I've been able to ride both sides. 
because my mom's brown skin, my dad was light fair skin. And then in the summertime in particular, I tend to get a very dark, dark clay, very dark. It's kind of very, you know, um, and, and I like that color. And I've always liked it because my skin looks smooth and refreshing. It's like kissed by the sun. And I'm getting vitamin D and I just feel healthier and more relaxed. But so I've been able to see both sides of the fence, so to speak. I've noticed people treat my mom very differently versus my dad and vice versa for a myriad of reasons. One of which was that subcultural cultural um, colorism within our culture, within our you know, in our heritage. But I've also noticed that when I was watching this video with him, he got punched in the face by a cop for no reason. He was taunted by them and followed by them. And it just, I just couldn't believe it because normally when I go overseas to do anything, I feel like I'm normally celebrated because um, I have a little twang and I speak a little accent from the South, but I'm really not from South, I'm from Detroit, but a lot right. of, <laughs> yeah. But it's just that that's the Midwest twang. Um, it's a little bit of everything. And then when you travel and you become a citizen of the world, you tend to adopt different cultures and different languages and dialects. And so your, your R's are different, you know, you know, you're like, you know, like, you know, like, like Spanish Romance languages. But I noticed in Columbia, they punched him and I was just like, this is crazy. Like he didn't do anything. And he kept saying, I didn't do anything. And they was like, shut up. And they just punching him. I just, I was like, what's up? So uh, I just can't believe it. And then I fast forward, I, you know, I've been a huge fan of, um, what is it called? Um, City of God, City of God in Brazil. I'm noticing yeah. that there's also a big, tremendous big difference between these land Spanish speaking countries or these Romance language countries versus these island countries. What's, is that true? Cause I feel like, um, I don't know. I, I feel like, I, I feel like, again, I went to a T-Mobile store um, on Southern Boulevard, which is like a less favorable area of the Bronx that I tend to visit. But I do love the culture and I love the energy of all parts of Bronx. It's just so family oriented. Um, and it just feels good to me. It feels at home. Um, I feel, the, I feel, the, I feel the, the brotherhood, the solidarity at times. I love the sense of communal capitalism. Um, I can literally go anywhere and I can, I can literally build anything within a six block radius of the Bronx. Yeah, I have, you know, have access to multiple tools on this store. I can get glass made, cut. I can get things welded. I can, I can do anything here. Um, versus in LA, I would have to like drive across town, go, go to OC, go here, go, you know, it's just so much traveling. But what I did notice is when I went inside this store, um, it was the summertime of last year, I believe. Um, and I'm a business customer of T-Mobile. And um, I just noticed this guy was just very rude to me. And he was very standoffish. And he was like, and I, and I was like, I'm not that tall. I'm like 5'10", 5'10". But I noticed he was shorter than me. And, you know, we have on certain shoes, we, you know, we, we tend to look even taller. But I noticed that he was giving me a little pushback and a little attitude. And I was like, why are you acting like this? Like, I was like, I, and, then, and, and, and I thought to myself, I had a Green Bay Packer color on oh i know what it was my friend she gave me a bandana a headband from brazil and my favorite colors are green and gold which is green bay packers mm. um not a huge sports fan but i've been to that stadium and i just and i've done stories on that town so i love those colors so i noticed this and i've been 
people don't have mistaken me for Brazilian and Dominican tons of times. So I feel like the Dominican young guy, little short guy, um, appeared to be like 23-ish. He was um, pressing me, being rude, wouldn't tell me the difference, wouldn't give me a screen protector. It was just weird stuff. We sold out. I was like, what are you talking about? I just called the corporate store. It was just really weird and nasty to the point where he's somebody's going to call the police on me. And it's like a marginalized person saying, like, oh, police, okay, great. Um, all right. And we're in the hood. They're never going to come. So I was just laughing to myself because I'm thinking, like, this is just absurd. But when I left the store, I took a selfie because I'm vain. Um, and I noticed I had that bed, that headband on. So I'm thinking maybe he thought I was Brazilian. Maybe he thought I was Brazilian. And I and maybe he thought that I was a non-Dominican or I was, you know, some well-to-do person from, you know, Rio de Janeiro or Saint Paul, whatever. So is there like is are there rivalries with those communities too? Because I feel like the land countries versus the island countries, I feel like, you know, that there's always like a different twang and vernacular, but is that really the case? Yeah, I mean, I think it, yeah, they're different. We're different folks. I mean, like for instance, in Brazil, I think there's a obviously a very strong uh, Portugal um, influence. That's uh, uh, and a, a lot of Africans, you know, were were dropped off. <laughs> you know, like what we say, um, then spread out through South America and you know the. Uh, Central America and the Caribbeans. Um, so I think there there is some difference. And again, I, I, I'd go back to, you know, taking a look at the history of media and the role that it has played. Um, because unfortunately, you know, in some parts of the world and probably most, uh, African-Americans are put in a very negative lens um depending what country you're at uh you know dominican get gets put on a very on that lens or puerto ricans get put on the that lens and you know so i think that unfortunately that that the, those experiences that you've had um you know probably have to do something with that when it comes to like colombia and for instance uh you know hendrix um there's a big problem in Colombia when it comes to colorism. Um, I mean, to the point that, you know, the first president of Colombia, Juan Jose Nieto Gil, he was pretty much erased from the history of, of Colombia. I know that it took maybe like 157 years for the face of the, you know, uh, 14th and only black president of Colombia to occupy the position in the presidential palace. And that was after, you know, it was whitewashed um, to make him more of a European features um, and be more appealing to quote unquote society in those times. Um, and then they uh, redid it to make him look like himself. Um, so I, I say all that just because you know, it, it speaks to you about the, the depth of the colorism issue. And when you take a look at the, the uh, communities that are most affected in places like Colombia are the Afro-Colombian uh, population. They're the indigenous populations 
that are the ones that are, you know, um, in their, you know, in their terminology at the bottom of the pole. So, you know, I think that unfortunately, you know, as uh, and I'm sure you know this, you know, traveling the world as a black man is, you know, public enemy number one um, by but just by stepping into the room, you know, and so those are the things that we have to fight to change. That's why, you know, representation matters, diversity matter, inclusion matters. So then that way, you know, black men, black women, black non-binary folks, indigenous people um, are able to step, you know, trans folks. There's so many of us, right, that are just not, they, we don't fit into these places. We need to create new places for us. And we also need to figure out a way that, um, you know, for everyone to feel safe wherever uh, they go.